Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Before I introduce today's guest, I just want to thank everyone who's supporting the podcast. Thanks to you, I'm now able to outsource the grunt work and focus on preparing for guests. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my website, colemanhughes.org. My guest today is Peter Singer. Peter Singer is an Australian moral philosopher. He's a professor of bioethics at Princeton University and a laureate professor at the Center for Applied Philosophy and Public Ethics at the University of Melbourne. He specializes in applied ethics and approaches ethical issues from a secular, utilitarian perspective. He's known in particular for his book Animal Liberation, in which he argues in favor of veganism, and his essay Famine, Affluence, and Morality, in which he argues in favor of donating to help the global poor. We talk about whether moral obligations depend on where you happen to be in the world. We talk about whether human happiness is comparative or absolute. We talk about Tyler Cowen's book, Stubborn Attachments. We talk about hedonic adaptation and whether the human race is happier now than it was a thousand years ago. We talk about judging figures from the past and taking down statues. And I dragged Peter into American politics by asking him how a consequentialist should view a problem with such a small body count, such as unarmed Americans killed by the police. So without further ado, Peter Singer. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Peter Singer. Peter, thanks so much for coming on the show. You're very welcome, Coleman. Happy to be on your show. Yes. um, We spoke about a week ago on the Comedy Cellar podcast about a wide range of issues. And I want to go over a few of those without boring you by rehashing all the same topics. But just to start, can you give people who, who may not know you a quick summary of who you are and how you describe what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a professor of bioethics at Princeton University. I've held that position for just over 20 years. Um, As your listeners can probably tell from my accent, I'm Australian by background. I grew up in Australia, studied at Oxford University and taught at NYU for a little while, went back to Australia and then came to Princeton, as I said, about 20 years ago. I'm probably best known for my book, Animal Liberation, which uh, some people credit with having triggered the modern animal rights movement. And certainly that's continued to be one of my major interests in trying to get better treatment for animals, particularly for farm animals, since that's the vast majority of the animals we abuse. But um, also quite early in my career, I wrote an article called Famine, Affluence and Morality, which is about what we people living in affluent countries, at least those of us who have some money to spare for things that we don't really need, ought to be doing to help people in extreme poverty in low-income countries. 
And that article got reprinted a lot and has had some influence in the effective altruism movement, which is a more recent movement. And as part of that, I wrote a book called The Life You Can Save, which started, uh, led to the starting of a charity with the same name that recommends the most effective organizations helping people in extreme poverty. You give a very understated account of, of your own uh, feats, I think. Um, as I told you last week, your book, Animal Liberation, had a big influence on me when I was maybe 16 or 17. I would say it's one of the three or four books that persuaded me to pursue a philosophy degree because just the style of reasoning, you know, it, it just became clear to me that there are, there are two types of people. There are people who assume that their base gut instinct about right and wrong is worth respecting completely and not challenging. And then there's, there are people who distrust their initial gut reaction and want to reason things through. And I remember in particular the, the argument from Animal Liberation that seemed, you know, it's one of those arguments that just seems obvious the, the moment you hear it, but you, you wouldn't necessarily think unless it's said explicitly is that, you know, the ability to reason on the part of an animal should make relatively little, if any, difference to our ability or, or the, the requirement that we care about its well-being. It's really the capacity to suffer and flourish that should matter. And, you know, anyway, that's just to say, I think that style of reasoning about right and wrong was very important to me, you know, as a, as a young, budding philosophy major. So, so thank you for that. Great. I'm, I'm very happy if I had an influence in bringing you to philosophy. That's, uh, that's terrific. And uh, it's always encouraging to me, actually, to hear that people do respond to arguments. As you say, not everybody does. But when people respond to a philosophical argument to the point of actually changing something that's very close and personal, like what we eat, uh, which affects us every day, more than once a day, um, I think that's a tremendous testament to the power of philosophy and the importance of the subject. Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about the other half of your most prominent parts of your legacy that you mentioned, your, your, ar- your argument about giving money to charity. Um, from famine, affluence, and morality. Can you briefly describe that? I'm sure you've done it a thousand times sure. in your life. But. Yeah. Uh, so in this original article that I mentioned, Famine, Affluence, and Morality, uh, I was concerned with a particular crisis that was unfolding then. This was, I wrote it in 1971. Uh, the crisis that led to the formation of the nation of Bangladesh, which previous to that was East Pakistan, part of Pakistan. And... Uh, There had been an autonomy movement, which democratically elected party in favor of more autonomy. And the Pakistani army uh, brutally repressed that movement, so brutally that 9 million um, people from East Pakistan fled across the border into India. And India, which was a much poorer country then than it is today, was faced with the enormous task of uh, housing, feeding, providing sanitation for 9 million refugees. and. Of course, they appealed to the uh, Western nations for assistance, and some assistance was forthcoming, but not nearly enough. So it was in that context that I want to ask myself the question, what, do we, what, what should we be doing? Is it okay for us to just go on with our normal lives while there are these 9 million people uh, who may not be able to get the necessities of life? Uh, and of course, it's true that... Uh, 
neither I nor my other friends were in any way responsible for this situation. But uh, still, that didn't answer the question of whether we ought to be helping. And to illustrate that, I used this little story of walking past a, a pond and seeing that a child has fallen into the pond. It's not your child. You're not responsible for the child in any way. Um, but you seem to be the only person close enough to rescue the child and prevent the child drowning. Now, there's no danger to you here because you know that this is a shallow pond and you can stand up in it. But there is some inconvenience and some expense because you're going to ruin your clothes. You just happen to be wearing really nice clothes to go somewhere important. So, so you'll be up for a couple of hundred dollars anyway. And then I asked the reader, and I've subsequently asked many audiences, so would it be okay to just say this child is not my responsibility and I don't want to be up for the expense of replacing my clothes, so I'm going to ignore the child? And pretty much everybody that I pose that question to says that would definitely not be okay. In fact, that would be completely wrong, um, an awful thing to do, to put the cost of your clothes above a child's life. But then if that's true, if, if, we, if that would be an, an awful thing to do, does the fact that the child is not in front of us but is in another country far away, um, the, ch the fact that we have to use some organization to help that, donate to, to help the child, do those factors themselves mean that we don't have the same moral obligation or that it's not an awful thing to do to ignore the plight of children who are, or adults for that matter, who are dying far away who we could help? Uh, and my answer is, uh, well, no, none of those factors really make a crucial moral difference. So I think that uh, we ought to be doing something, something significant to help people in extreme poverty. Uh, of course, you can ask, well, how much? That's a, a further question. But certainly, uh, it's not enough to just wash our hands of it and say, that's not my responsibility. Yeah, I've encountered one kind of critique of this argument um, from a professor of a class I, I recently took. And I wonder if you've encountered it. It's more of an attitude than a specific argument, but it's just the sense that the, the, the injunction to give in faraway places where you can't see is just a way of avoiding your more immediate responsibilities to your local neighborhood. Say, if, you know, if there are problems in your city that you could donate to, the very fact that you live in that city gives you a special obligation to donate there. Uh, and you know, the desire to just send a check to some place far away where you don't have to think about it somehow represents a, uh, a failing. Have you ever encountered that? And what do you think of it, if so? I don't think I've encountered the argument that it's a failing. I've encountered the argument that uh, we ought to be doing something locally as well. But I don't see, you know, e even if, let's, let's say for the moment we accept that we ought to be doing something locally. I don't see that that absolves you from also doing something further away. Uh, I don't see why it replaces that obligation. Now, if the people locally were just as needy, and if you could help them just as effectively, by which I mean that uh, a dollar given locally would go just as far as a dollar given in a low-income country uh, far away, then I would accept this. You know, but I wouldn't see it as an obligation to give locally. I would just see it as an obligation to give where you can give most effectively. And if it is most effective to give locally, sure, give locally. But uh, I think the facts are, are very different from that. If you're living in the United States, then 
in fact, your, your dollars don't go very far because uh, essentially it, it costs more for people to feed and house themselves um, than it does. The, uh, the poverty line in the United States for a family of four, I think, if I remember rightly, is around $23,000, which you know is, is not very much to live on in the United States. But the uh, World Bank's extreme poverty line is uh, about $2 a day, so let's say $750 a year. Um, so obviously, if, if you're helping somebody on $750 a year and you give them, let's say, $750 a year, uh, $750, you, you've made a huge difference to them. Uh, you've doubled their annual income. You've enabled them to buy things now uh, that they couldn't possibly afford previously because you can't save very much if you're just living on $2 a day. Whereas if you gave $750 to uh, a family living in poverty in the United States, it really wouldn't make a, a huge difference, certainly not a life-transforming difference for them as it can in other countries. So to me, that fact overrides any particular obligations that you have to give locally. How does inequality factor into all of this? Because implicit in your argument is the idea that, you know, to some extent, poverty correlates with unhappiness in, in some kind of causal way such that, you know, giving money moves the needle on some deeper principle that we care about, like happiness or well-being or, or whatever you might want to call it. And how inequality might affect that deeper principle is something I often think about uh, because, you know, there's a, there's an, I think a, a huge literature that sort of argues over the question of whether a person's happiness is a function of their relative status and, you know, whether that's their relative status to their people in their immediate surroundings or their country or the world, or whether it's a function of their absolute status. And depending on which one is right and in what ways they're right, that would seem to have implications for how you would want to give charitably. Does that, does that question make sense? And if so, do you have a position on that? Yeah, the question certainly makes sense. Um, so um, I'm not really interested in inequality per se. That is, I, I, I think that inequality can have many bad consequences, including uh, perhaps the fact that even people who are relatively poor in a wealthy society um, although they have enough to have all of the necessities of life, may be less happy than they would be if the society were more uh, egalitarian. So I think that's relevant, and that's a good reason for making the society more equal. Um, also, of course, if you have uh, vast discrepancies of wealth, as uh, we do in the United States, uh, and if you have laws that allow money to be used politically, as again the United States has, then you get tremendous inequalities of power as well, which is very damaging for democracy, I think. So there are good reasons why uh, a more equal society is better, but not just in itself. For example, I don't think that leveling down, which would be another way of producing equality, is in itself a, a good thing. Now, do I think that relative poverty or absolute poverty is more important for happiness? Well, I think they're, they're both relevant. But I think that uh, it's absolute poverty, that is the World Bank's definition of extreme poverty, which really means not having enough income to 
reliably be able to meet your basic needs, um, needs for food, shelter, maybe limited amount of medical care. I think that that's more crucial, particularly to, to suffering, right? When you talk about happiness, um, I tend to focus on the negative, on, on suffering and reducing suffering more than on increasing happiness. Uh, partly because I think we have a better handle on how to do that and we can do it less expensively than it takes to increase happiness. So uh, when you're talking about reducing suffering, then I think helping people who don't have enough to meet their basic needs is uh, the best, the most uh, provable and certainly the most cost-effective way of doing that. So this gets into some interesting trade-offs and I mentioned uh, Tyler Cowen's book on our, on our last podcast, the Comedy Seller podcast, but I, I want to sort of re-ask that question and ask it slightly differently. But let me just first give a summary of what I'm talking about for, for the audience. Uh, Tyler Cowen wrote a book called Stubborn Attachments, in which he argues that we have a moral obligation to increase uh, GDP as much as possible without violating human rights uh, and while also mitigating the effects of climate change and pr- trying to prevent nuclear war. But it, you know, the bulk of the book is dedicating to arguing why GDP growth is important. And the way he does that is by essentially doing what you did in famine, affluence, and morality with regard to the dimension of space, which is to say your argument was that the number of miles between you and another person shouldn't diminish your obligation to them. What, what Cowan does in this book is, you know, the number of years away uh, that you are from a person, a person who's yet unborn, also doesn't diminish your obligation to them. And so given that GDP functions uh, in terms of compound growth, point one, a 0.1% change in the GDP rate will mean over the course of 100 years that the world is much, much wealthier 100 years from now than it would have been with a slightly lower rate. And so what he ends up arguing is that if, if given a trade-off between reducing inequality, for example, through a welfare program that has a negative effect on GDP and maximizing GDP, we actually have a moral obligation to do the second because we are, we would essentially, you know, if we didn't, we would be sacrificing many, the the wealth of many, many future people for the poverty of smaller number of people that are alive today. So um, I'm curious with regard to your reflections on inequality just now, if you think that argument makes sense at all and how you view that issue, the, the issue of, you know, long time spans in general. Uh, I agree with Tyler Cowen that we should not discount the future per se. Of course, the future may be uncertain and we may not know what effect we'll have on the future. Uh, so we can discount that. For example, Nicola Stern, the uh, English uh, economist who wrote about climate change some years ago, discounted the future by a very small amount on the basis of the fact that there may not be a future, that there may be uh, a nuclear war or a large asteroid may collide with our planet or something like that. There's a chance, but only a very small one, that there just won't be any people around in 100 years. And then, of course, if we sacrifice 
the poor today for the benefit of the future tomorrow, we'll have sacrificed in vain. So I think his discount was something like a quarter of 1% per annum, much less than economists often discount the future by. Uh, and I think that's reasonable, but, but uh, you, you shouldn't discount the future just because it's the future. And, and Cohen is right about that, uh, just as we should care equally about people wherever they are, so we should care equally about people whenever they are, uh, as long as we know that they are, uh, and as long as we know that we can make a difference to their lives. Now, the, the other question that's raised by Karen's argument, of course, is does an increase in GDP make people happier or better off? And uh, if so, how does that compare with how the welfare program that you mentioned in your example makes people happier and better off? And uh, I suppose it would be possible to argue that um, if people are, are really poor now, you make a bigger difference to their well-being than increasing the GDP of people who are already wealthy, right? Because if we assume that GDP is increasing, people in 100 years will be far wealthier than we are, then I suppose you can raise the question uh, and suppose that the GDP was, uh, did increase, as you say, by that 0.1%, and over a century that made a large difference. Would they still be that much happier off? In other words, would having, I'm not sure what the figures are, but would having a, a GDP that was 10 times ours make, uh, when I say ours, I mean that of affluent countries, um, make people happier than having one that was five times uh, higher than ours. So I think you need to ask all of those questions. But it's possible. Uh, it's possible that the answers come out in the way that Cohen suggests. And if it does, then there's a powerful case for saying that's what we ought to do. Um, but I just think you ought to be pretty rigorous in scrutinizing those assumptions because obviously there are assumptions that are going to hurt people, uh, the people who don't get the welfare program. And before you hurt the concrete people living now, you need to be very sure that you're going to benefit, uh, although there's a very high probability that you'll benefit people in the future. Uh, we've had a lot of uh, long-term planning that has come unstuck uh, in some economies and some uh, parts over the past century or so. So we want to be forewarned about that possibility. So I want to talk a little bit more about happiness and happiness over long time spans. I think one important piece to put in here is the idea of hedonic adaptation, which you know basically says that you know, one becomes, as one becomes accustomed to new circumstances, one's expectations rise to meet those better circumstances. And, you know, what, you don't end up getting as much pleasure from the same amount of whatever it is, whether it's an activity or, or food or drugs or sex, you know, whatever, just insert the pleasurable activity. As you do more of it, your, your expectations for what you expect rise in lockstep with your reality, or at least rise to some extent with your reality. And if you really take that idea seriously, I think there's no, there's no doubt that to some extent, this is a fact of human psychology. Our minds do work this way with regard to many pleasures, including the pleasures that come from increased wealth. It's possible to believe as someone like Yuval Noah Harari does, that you know, the, the typical human was happier in a hunter-gatherer tribe than they are today. 
and that you know doubling the world's wealth, even if that wealth spread fairly evenly, you know wouldn't necessarily double the world's happiness or may not even increase it very much. It's possible to lapse into a kind of nihilism about the possibility for humanity as a species to become much happier short of you know avoiding the worst possible kinds of suffering like well, like famine and war so do you how do you think about hedonic adaptation and its effect on the possibility of making progress in human flourishing on a global scale well hedonic uh, adaptation i agree is is a is a fact and it's one of the things that i had in mind when i said uh, in response to your question about Tyler Cowen, that uh, it's not so clear to me that uh, people 100 years now are living on 10 times our per capita GDP rather than five times our per capita GDP. They're going to be all that much happier. So uh, I think that's true. But uh, I don't agree with uh, Harari's claim about hunter-gatherer societies. Um, they may have been happy in, in many ways at many times, no doubt, when they were well-fed, um, no doubt they enjoyed sex as, as much as we do, um, although as they, they couldn't avoid the consequences of pregnancy. But um, I think the, uh, the, the negatives, the suffering that they had that they could not alleviate must have been much worse. So you know, if they injured themselves and broke a bone, then they might be in great pain that couldn't be relieved um, and might, you know, it might, the injury might uh, fester and go gangrenous and they might uh, die a slow and horrible death. Um, and well, I just mentioned um, uh, childbirth or pregnancy and the relation to, to sex. So uh, again, women must have suffered a lot more in childbirth when that went wrong. Uh, we know that uh, maternal mortality rates were, of course, uh, very high. Um, so I think that they uh, had a lot of a lot of things went wrong um, that we have better solutions for. So I think what our greater wealth and scientific knowledge technology does is to enable us to avoid some of the worst forms of suffering that uh, people used to experience, and not just hunter gatherer societies, but you know, even in, in the nineteenth century. Uh, suffered horribly from simple things like toothache, which we can generally get attended to pretty rapidly. So I think that we can make people happier, that I think increasing GDP and, and spreading it around the world does make people happier by reducing severe suffering. Um, and that's not something that we ever adapt to. In other words, there isn't the, the negative of hedonic adaptation that uh, suffering stops hurting after a while. So um, I, I'm not nihilistic. I think that we can make progress in improving the world um, and bringing everybody up to a certain level. Whether there's then a ceiling on this level by, because of hedonic adaptation, uh, that's possible. I couldn't confidently say that that's wrong, but no doubt we'll learn more about that as we get to the situation where we've got everybody or most people up to that level and we don't have to worry about extreme suffering anymore and we're only thinking about can we increase people's happiness? Is there anything that, well, let, let me put it this way, is, uh, you know, your famine, affluence, and morality argument about the, you know, saving the drowning child, what it does it is uses a simple thought experiment to show why you as an individual 
plausibly have a strong moral obligation to do something. Is there anything similar to that that doesn't operate at the scale of an individual but operates at the scale of a nation in terms of public policy? It's like a, a, a policy that nations plausibly have a very strong obligation to adopt where the moral logic of it is not extremely difficult or or complicated? Well, I do think that uh, countries have moral obligations um, and they're not always fulfilling them. Uh, I think that's particularly for cases where individual actions don't or aren't likely to be uh, sufficiently effective to achieve the goal. And, and the example that springs to mind as you were talking is, is climate change. So uh, I think that individuals can and should do things to reduce their carbon footprint, but I don't think that's going to be enough. Um, I don't think we'll get enough people in, in the present situation reducing their carbon footprint to avoid catastrophic climate change. Uh, and the way to do that is to have governments provide uh, incentives like uh, carbon tax for avoiding carbon or a cap and trade scheme. And uh, if governments don't do that, then I think we are going to get into a situation where um, a lot of bad things will happen. You know, you talked about parallel to the drowning child in the pond. Well, we'll have uh, drowning people perhaps as sea levels rise and low-lying regions are inundated. Poorer countries have quite a lot of those low-lying regions because they, they, they tend to farm river deltas very intensively. River deltas, of course, have very fertile land, but they're low-lying. So the Mekong uh, Delta is, is one example. Uh, in Bangladesh, the deltas of the great rivers that uh, flow to the sea in uh, the Gulf of, of Bengal are low-lying areas. Um, the Nile in, in Egypt. Uh, and I think rising sea levels are going to uh, inundate these areas, um, bring salt into them, which will make them unsuitable for farming. So that's just just one example of uh, how the wealthy nations with their high levels of, of greenhouse gas emissions are harming poorer people. And we could multiply the examples in many different ways, of course. Uh, and yes, I think that rich countries have obligations, which they are currently uh, not fulfilling, perhaps a couple of exceptions, to rapidly phase out their greenhouse gas emissions and stop harming the nations that they are, the other countries that they're harming at present. Okay, so I want to pivot a little bit and steer you into some uh, topics uh, that relate to current events and politics. First off, you've written, I, I think I've written, an, I've read an essay of yours where you talk about judging figures from the past and taking down statues, particularly with regard to Stalin. And mm. um, perhaps you remember the, the essay. Uh, I think I talked about studies of Hitler as well. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, obviously in America, we're having, you know, we've been having a perpetual argument about, uh, you know, the, the, the easiest version of the tough conversation is with Confederate statues um, and whether they should come down. And then the harder version of the hard conversation is with founding fathers who owned slaves to, you know, many of whom owned slaves and to different extents felt either proving or ambivalent or, you know, hypocritically disapproving 
of slavery. And this is obviously a symbolic issue. It's not an issue on which lives actually turn. So, you know, I, I guess I have two questions. The first is just, what do you think about the value of symbols to begin with? You're, you're a, you know, famously a, a consequentialist philosopher, you know, and, and I am too, which means I base my, I try to base my reasoning about right and wrong on the, the consequences of actions the, you know, as concretely as possible. So when I think about symbolic issues, sometimes I'm tempted to just not have an opinion because, you know, we're not talking about anyone's concrete well-being, or if we are, it's a kind of psychological well-being that I feel, you know, some, some folks like a statue, some folks don't, and how, who am I to weigh one over the other? So, so first off, what do you think about the value of symbols, um, morally speaking, uh, when we talk about statues? Uh, you know, like you, I tend to look at future consequences and I think it depends on to what extent people notice and are affected by the symbols. And one of the, uh, the perhaps the ironies of the movement to look at these symbols is that people notice them more. Um, you know, no doubt there are people in, uh, Southern cities, um, maybe, uh, African-Americans whose, uh, ancestors were slaves, um, who walk past these statues of Confederate generals without noticing them. Uh, thinking about who they were, um, now they think, hey, wait a minute, my city's got a statue up of somebody who was trying to defend the enslavement of my ancestors, um, and uh, I don't like that. It makes me feel bad when I walk past that. Same thing happened actually at Princeton with, with Woodrow Wilson, because um, I'd been at Princeton for many years before the Black Lives Matter movement brought up the fact that Princeton, that Wilson was a, was a racist who reintroduced uh, segregation into the federal civil service uh, after it had been abandoned, you know, for, well, 20 or 30 years after it had, it had gone from the civil service. Um, so I imagine there were many African, you know, there's a, there's a college called Wilson College at Princeton, which I happened to be an honorary fellow and I sometimes eat in their dining room. There was a huge uh, picture, like a wall poster of, of Woodrow Wilson uh, uh, on that dining room. And uh, I'm sure Many people walked past it and had no idea, as I had no idea, that, that we were walking past a picture of somebody who was a racist who reintroduced segregation into the federal civil service. Um, then uh, Black Lives come along and, and tell us all this information. Now we can't feel the same about walking past this photo of Wilson to get our lunch. And so then you guess once people are aware of that and they're uh, offended and troubled by it um, and feel, hey, why is this university honoring somebody uh, who wouldn't have wanted me to even be a student at this university. Um, then I can understand that uh, there's a reason for, for, for taking this down. So it's kind of irony that you, you point to the symbols and they become more relevant to people than they were when they just were part of the background. Yeah, I, I think that's a very interesting observation, one that I've also had. And it's possible to take two different attitudes towards it. You might say, it's always good to become educated about the ugly parts of a person's legacy, even if what comes along with that is a kind of mental suffering. And I personally, I have no problem with the status quo being a statue of someone who you know, has skeletons in their closet that nobody knows about and nobody particularly cares about. But, you know, I, I've always been fascinated by circumstances where 
you know, for example, the group that should be offended, in fact, isn't, but the group that should be offended or or you wouldn't expect to be offended is offended. And I, I think, you know, recently of the fact that the, the, the Washington Redskins an American football team is, is finally changing their name after roughly two decades of, of being asked by, uh, you know, a, a, a small group of people in the media and journalists and activism circles to do so. But, you know, the Washington Post did at least two polls of the Native American community to see what percentage wanted the Redskins to change their name. And both times it was on the order of 10% and on the order of 90% saying they should keep the name the same. And I, I was always fascinated by that because, you know, at, at face value, when I was first told about the Washington Redskins name being problematic, my first reaction was, yeah, that's, that's bad. That, you know, that, that must be enormously offensive to Native Americans you know, not knowing any Native Americans myself. But then to, to learn that the majority of people in the community don't care, and it's really just a, a small minority that end up on the op-ed pages, making actually fairly compelling arguments, but nevertheless a very small minority. How does that, you know, in a situation like that, what is the right move to do? Is it to side with the minority over the majority because the majority is rather apathetic about the issue or doesn't come up in, in defense as much or to just to just change um if it's if it's apathy on on behalf of the majority that is if the uh, native americans were saying i don't care either way then you know it's reasonable to say well look there's a small group who really do care and if there's nobody particularly is going to mind us getting a new name maybe getting a new name is is the best thing to do um, if, on the other hand, the majority of the community said, hey, we like them being called Redskins, we don't find that an offensive term, and we're proud to have, you know, people of our uh, of our ethnic group uh, remembered as, thought of as, as part of a football team, you know, maybe they think it shows that we're strong or athletic or something, because presumably football teams don't name themselves after groups that they think would not be athletic, uh, vigorous competitive players, you know, if that were the case, then I would say we should go with the majority if the majority are actually going to be upset at the change. But if the, you know, if the 90% are just don't care either way and 10% care quite intensely, I would give that weight to the 10% who care intensively. Hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit more about, uh, let me steer you into a little different territory, which is, you know, my hobby horse on this podcast and, you know, a a topic that has been uh, very much in the American media and global media in the past two months, which is the problem of police killings of unarmed civilians. So I'm among the few people that have tried to make the point that, you know, without downplaying the injustice of a policeman woman killing an unarmed American, that it makes sense to calibrate, at least to some degree, our outrage in proportion to the number of people that are harmed. And I actually, you know, it it reminds me, I, I recently had Neil deGrasse Tyson on the podcast. And a few months ago, I believe he got into hot water 
for uh, in the wake of a school shooting that we had. I think it was a school shooting where he he observed how many problems that we don't tend to think about as important uh, claim more lives per year than school shootings. Many, many more lives. And he was, as they say, ratioed on Twitter for for making this point, and ended up, I think, apologizing. You know, if not for the content, then for for the saying the wrong thing at the wrong time or being tone deaf or something. So I'm among the people that has been routinely tone deaf, I suppose, about the the point about police killings of unarmed Americans, which claim on the order of 40 to 50 lives per year. And again, it's not that there's no reason to care about that. There, you know, that is a problem. I want to underscore that, but the the global protest that this has inspired when we live in a, a context where we have many problems that claim you know that, that's a, that's a on the order of a lightning strike kind of a problem where i often try to point to the problem of homicide as a, a problem that just claims thousands of lives a year and that we have that represents a, a, a similar public policy failure to our public policy failure on shooting of unarmed police, but a public policy failure that just claims many more lives in America, at least. This is not true uh, where you live, I, I, I believe, and not true in most of Europe. But so, you know, all that to say, the way I think about this issue has, ha, is a straightforward result of consequentialist reasoning. And I wonder to what extent you think about this when you read the news and to what extent you calibrate your outrage on an issue like police killings of unarmed civilians by the numbers. Uh, I do think the numbers are, are relevant, um, certainly. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, the example that I most often talk about in terms of numbers goes back to the animal movement where, uh, if you ask, uh, where do most of the donations people make to help animals go? The answer is to uh, shelters and pounds and rescue operations for dogs and cats. Um, something like maybe 80 to 90% of the money the public gives goes to those organizations. Um, and where is most of the animal suffering? And the answer clearly is uh, farmed animals, particularly, obviously, animals in factory farms, in intensive farms, where you know, in the United States, we're talking about billions of animals that live their lives indoors in intensive farms every year. Uh, and we're talking about uh, a few million abused dogs and cats. So it's, it's, a, it's a huge difference. And I think you know, you know, people get outraged by photos of an abused dog or cat because they care about dogs and cats and they love them and they don't care that much about pigs or chickens. Um, but I think we should be more outraged by the immense amount of suffering that we inflict on billions of, of chickens and pigs and uh, in particular, and uh, give much more weight to that than we do to the abuse of, of dogs and cats. So um, the question is, is something similar appropriate uh, and something similar going on in the case of the outrage about police killings? Uh, and I think possibly it is. And I think here the explanation is not so much that we, uh, you know, as with dogs and cats, that there are certain species that we live with and care about more. 
It's more that we've had such dramatic and horrifying videos of this happening. I mean, the death of George Floyd was one example where we see that on video. We see it going on for a long time. We uh, hear him saying he can't breathe, see the police officer having re- maintaining his knee on the neck, and, and that's just outrageous. And then we have these other videos of, uh, was it Rayla Brooks in uh, Atlanta who was running away um, and went shot in the back by police uh, uh, you know, after a clearly nonviolent encounter? Uh, and, and you see those videos and you think, my God, how can people do this? This is horrendous. And uh, that's why people want to do something about it. They want to join in the march. Uh, and we have these identifiable victims. We can say, you know, George, George, George Floyd, Rayla Brooks and the various others. Ivan Martin, you go back there. And, in, and when you talk about uh, homicides, which I agree is obviously a much larger problem, we don't usually have those videos. Um, obviously, you know, general murderers don't carry body cams to record what they're doing, or they don't do it in public where other people are videoing. And you, know, you say it's, it's a, it is a bigger problem, which I think is true, but is it an equally tractable problem? Is it something that we know what to do about? Now, to some extent, I think the answer to that is yes. Um, what we need to do about that is get guns uh, off out of the hands of civilians in America. But, you know, we were on that uh, Comedy Cellar program and uh, uh, Noam there said something like, yeah, well, good luck with that, as if to say, you know, that's politically impossible in the United States. Now, I don't know enough about US politics to say, is that politically impossible? Uh, over what time period is it politically impossible? It, it is an extraordinary fact about the United States that it, so many people carry guns, and that's completely unlike uh, where I'm speaking from now in Australia. Uh, it's completely unlike uh, Europe and the United Kingdom and most other places that I'm familiar with. Uh, and that's reflected in the, in the homicide rates, of course, and in the rates of other deaths by shooting, including accidental deaths of children. So that seems to me to be something that is definitely worth campaigning about. And it looked like, you know, after the school shooting, um, what's the name? I forget the name of the school, but, you know, that started this big movement and people were getting out on the streets. And I kind of wish that that had built, uh, gone on and it achieved the momentum and the influence that the current um, Black Lives Matter movement has uh, after the death of George Floyd, because that would have, I think, been a much better thing. It would have actually not only reduced general homicides, but would have reduced police shootings as well, because the police would have had less reason to believe that anybody that they stopped is likely to be carrying a gun. So uh, to that extent, I agree with you. but. Um, you know, I, I do also want to say that I think those videos do demonstrate something really sickening that goes on with the culture in some police forces. And uh, I can well understand that people are outraged by that and they want to stop it. Yeah, I, I definitely think the videos um, are a huge, probably the, the main cause of the upswelling concern about this issue and uh, the rise of smartphones and social media. Um, I, I just want to say, I think you may have said, Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta who got shot shot in the back. I don't think he was shot in the back. He was the one that was um, turning and pointing his taser at the cop as he got shot, right? Yeah, I, you're right. But but he was some distance from the cop and, and I think the cop knew that the taser actually wasn't going to work anymore. As I understand, what I read, the tasers only can be used twice and it had, mm. the cop had already used that taser twice. Right. So the cop should have known anyway that the taser was no threat to him. 
Yeah. In, in any event, I think, I think it is, you know, in addition to being a result of the videos, I think it's also a result of ideas because, you know, the, in the smartphone era, we not only have videos of cops doing awful things to black people, there are those that circulate once every few months, you know, as you mentioned, there are, you know, just as many videos of cops doing those to white people that don't get circulated. There are videos of just horrible, you know, I saw a video on Twitter the other day of just a drive-by shooting in a neighborhood. A guy just walks up, uh, drives up. This man is walking, holding his young daughter's hand. She doesn't look like she can be older than five. And a car pulls up next to him and shoots him dead. This is the kind of thing that happens with regularity in, in high crime pockets of, of America, which you know, happen to be predominantly black. And you know, there, there is video of all of this stuff, but the video that ends up going viral, I think reflects a pre-existing attitude that, that people have to care about certain things more than others. Um, because there's just an infinity of, of, of video of, of anything you want. You can, you can fill your whole day up with any particular cause for concern in the modern era. So I think there still is a burden of explaining why this issue is the one that has so deeply rattled the American and I guess, frankly, global moral conscious. Um, and I don't think it's all a bad thing. I think, I think, much of what will come out of this is necessary police reforms that have been delayed for decades um, and, and opposed by very powerful police unions. But I worry about the underlying biases that cause those concerns, preventing us from ever coming to grips with the problem of violent crime and homicide in neighborhoods where the number one cause of death for, for black men in their 20s is homicide and well over 50%, upwards of 80 or 90% of them go unsolved. So you have this internecine violence where you, your brother gets killed and you feel like you have to, um, you have to get the person back because you're, you're living in a condition where this, the state monopoly on violence basically doesn't obtain. So I worry about the, the underlying bias preventing us from having a serious national movement around that issue, the way that we, for example, had one about drunk driving in the 80s. Yeah. I suppose, you know, what's going on there is that um, if these are killings by African-Americans, of African-Americans, um, and you start focusing on them, you're pointing to something bad happening in that community um, and people will feel, you know, well, particularly white people will feel, well, you know, should I, as a white person, be holding up uh, bad things that black people are doing to each other, basically? I think that, that was certainly been an issue here in Australia with indigenous communities where there was a, a lot of domestic violence going on, not necessarily, but um, there were a lot of problems, particularly when people were influenced by alcohol um, in terms of domestic violence. And for a long time, that was not publicized as much as it should be uh, for exactly those reasons. People didn't want to pick on those who were already a disadvantaged minority. Um, but uh, in fact, when, when it did start to come out, then many of the Indigenous women in particular were, spoke up and were, were glad that, that something had been said about that and that 
things were being done about it. Yeah, I think there is a, you know, around every topic like this, whether it's in indigenous communities in Australia or black Americans, there is, I think, on the part of many people, a profound discomfort in broaching the topic. And that's, you know, I think it goes back to what I said at the beginning, where, you know, either we trust our discomfort about a subject and just bar off any subject that that elicits discomfort, or we distrust the feeling, you know, your initial gut reaction to a conversation and go deeper and actually find reasons or look for reasons why you should care more or less about something. I think that in a nutshell describes a lot of what you've been concerned with in your career, not about these specific topics, but about not just obeying your first emotional impulse about what it means to be a good person and, you know, which issues deserve your attention. And I do see what we're going through now as a kind of crisis of obeying the first emotional impulse. And to the extent that that causes good things, I think it causes those good things sort of by accident. And so I worry about the long-term health of a society that is afraid to look at the uncomfortable issues. Um, yeah, I agree. I think we should be looking at uncomfortable issues. We should be prepared to do that. And that's one of the things that worries me about the kind of online culture of uh, harassment and abuse that occurs when people dare to raise issues that um, op- leave them open to you know, possibly quite unjustifiable uh, attacks of um, uh, against what they're doing, being hostile or racist or homophobic or against uh, trans people or something of that sort. And uh, there are too many cases of people who have suffered from that. Uh, and actually, that's one of the reasons why I, together with a couple of colleagues, uh, am um, establishing a journal called the Journal of Controversial Ideas, which will, uh, which will be a, an academic peer-reviewed journal. So it's not going to accept any kinds of rants that uh, don't have lots of evidence and an argument, but it will enable people who are worried about being harassed for having controversial views to publish under a pseudonym if they wish to do so, which other academic journals generally don't do. Uh, so we're, we're trying to ensure that there is a space for controversial ideas that people can publish, uh, you know, as I say, good, well-argued arguments with evidence uh, uh, without the risk of sacrificing their career or being personally abused for doing so. Yeah, I actually remember seeing that one or two years ago, you know, reading about that idea being in the works. Is that still in the works? What, what's the timeline? Yeah, it's actually, it's taken a little longer for us to get it established and we hope because we want it to be an open access journal so that people can, uh, you know, uh, access it without having a library subscription or paying a lot of money. And we found a way of doing that now. Uh, and uh, it's we've actually we now have a call for papers out, so we're accepting papers, and we've got twenty or thirty papers that are currently been submitted and are under review. Uh, none of them have completed the review process as yet, but uh, we're hoping that that will happen uh, within the next couple of months, and we'll start to put some papers out on on the website. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I really look forward to that. Uh, before I let you go, Peter, can you point people to um, your latest book or the, the book you're most recently 
um, advertising and uh, tell people where they can find you on the internet? So I've, I've the, the next book that will come out is um, going to be a book called Why Vegan, which is a collection of some of my past essays. Um, uh, it'll be published by Norton in October. Uh, and that will restate some of the things that I've written over the years uh, with also something recent about the collection, connection between uh, factory farming and pandemics and, and wet markets and pandemics. Prior to that, so the other thing that I've been doing is working on uh, effective altruism and with this charity, The Life You Can Save. I did a, a 10th anniversary edition of The Life You Can Save, a, a, a new edition. And again, we've, we've made that completely free as well. So if you go to thelifeyoucansave.org, uh, you can download a digital copy of the book free. You can also get an audio copy free. And the audio has been done by a number of uh, well-known people who've freely donated their time because they support the ideas of the book. So people like uh, Kristen Bell, the actress, Paul Simon, the singer-songwriter, Stephen Fry, a BBC uh, host. Uh, actually, one of the things I like about the audio is that we have a number of different ways of speaking English in it. We have, um, I read a chapter in my Australian accent. Stephen Fry has a beautiful English accent. We have Americans. We have a Shabana Azmi, who's a very famous Indian actress. Uh, we have a, a Winnie Alma, who's an African uh, woman reading. So um, I, I really like the uh, globalism of the audio edition of The Life You Can Save. That's awesome. Uh, well, thank you so much. It's been a true pleasure to have you on and uh, hope to see you again. Great. Thanks. It's been uh, glad to have the opportunity of talking to you.